If asking your mate down the pub about vaping, here's what they'd probably say. No one agrees if it's safer or not, so you might as well smoke anyway. Now what your mate needs is a Cochrane review, all the facts have been checked at least twice. They'd find there's a lot that the experts agree on and might give you different advice. Hi, I'm Nicola Linson. And I'm Jamie Hartman Boyce. We're both researchers based at the University of Oxford, where we work with the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group. Welcome to this edition of Let's Talk E-Cigarettes. This podcast is a companion to a research project being carried out at the University of Oxford, where every month we search the e-cigarette literature to find new studies. We then use these studies to update our Cochrane Systematic Review of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. This is called a living systematic review. In each episode of this podcast, we start by going through the studies we've found that month and then go into more detail about a particular study or topic related to e-cigarettes. So first off, I'll guide you through what we found in our June 2021 searches in a nutshell. We found three references. One was a dissertation, which is linked to Zeng 2016, a study already included in the review. The second is a potentially new study identified via a clinical trials registry, but we are awaiting further detail to confirm whether it is eligible or not. And finally, we found a new protocol called Effects of Providing Tailored Information About E-Cigarettes in a Web-Based Smoking Cessation Intervention by Elling and colleagues and published in JMIR Research Protocols. This randomised controlled trial will look at the effect of providing information about using e-cigarettes for smoking cessation rather than providing the e-cigarettes themselves and so will be an interesting addition to our review when completed. So in addition to what we found in our searches we're also excited to receive an early view of a new paper this month and to speak to Professor Thomas Brandon at the University of Southern Florida about his new study hot off the press in the Lancet Public Health. Interestingly like the protocol Nicola just spoke about this study didn't test the effects of providing an e-cigarette which most of the studies in our review set out to do But instead, in this study, what they did was they investigated the effects of providing tailored advice to dual users on how to use their e-cigarettes to quit smoking conventional cigarettes. It's a large randomized controlled trial, and we'd been aware that results from the study were forthcoming because we'd actually seen a conference abstract earlier this year, which we'd spoken about briefly on this podcast. So we were delighted when Professor Brandon shared an impressed copy of the full article with us a few weeks ago. Now that it's just published on the 24th of June, we can talk about it on the podcast and are so grateful to Professor Brandon for finding the time to talk to us in this month's Deep Dive. So to start off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you into doing research on e-cigarettes? Sure, and and thank you for inviting me, uh, Jamie. This is very exciting. Um... I'm a clinical psychologist at the University of South Florida and H. Lee Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. I conduct research on smoking and smoking cessation. I've been doing so since entering graduate school at the University of Wisconsin back in 1982, working uh, with Dr. Tim Baker at the time. You know, I saw my first e-cigarette, I think, in a mall kiosk more than a decade ago, and uh, was kind of curious about it. And like a lot of tobacco researchers, I was pretty skeptical at first, given the previous false promises of safe tobacco products such as filters and ultralight cigarettes that just didn't pan out. 
But then I, I saw some friends and colleagues actually quit smoking with them. And these were from the early devices, the single light devices that delivered very little nicotine. And yet uh, they seem to be able to switch. Um, and you know, with millions of smokers uh, eventually using these devices, I just felt research was really needed on that. So we started doing some more descriptive research, just surveying uh, e-cigarette users and uh, getting their opinions and surveying their expectancies or their beliefs about e-cigarettes versus combustible cigarettes versus uh, pharmacotherapies like nicotine replacement therapies and seeing what they viewed as advantages and disadvantages of it. And that's kind of what got us started with this. Great. And and we were super excited to see your new study. I'd been aware it was going on, so it's very exciting to see it get to this point. Um, but before we go into talking about that study in particular, I just wondered, because it's specifically around targeting dual users of e-cigarettes and combustible tobacco cigarettes, and I think dual users are a group that we hear a lot about, and increasingly a little bit more research is getting done into them. But I just wondered, before we get into the specifics of your study, can you tell us a bit about why you chose to do a study in dual users and if there's anything kind of special about this group that we should be aware of? Yes, well, you know, about 70% of vapors say they started vaping in order to quit smoking or to seriously cut down on their smoking. So that suggests that this is largely a group that's already trying to quit smoking. It's already motivated to quit smoking. Despite this, many of them seem to get stuck at dual use, you know, using both products to different degrees. Some are, you know, mostly smoking and, and vaping a little bit. Some are mostly vaping, but still smoking a little bit and there's everything in between. But through their dual use, they seem to be maintaining both their nicotine dependence as well as their exposure to toxicants from the combustible cigarettes. So given their quitting motivation, uh, this seemed like a population that could benefit from a fairly minimal intervention, you know, self-help type intervention like we do, that included some advice on how best to use our e-cigarettes in order to you know, completely quit smoking. Great, so that I think leads us nicely into your study in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about the methods you used and what you set out to do? Sure, well first we conducted focus groups uh, with dual users, those who had been able to quit smoking and completely switch over and those who hadn't. Uh, we wanted to learn about what worked for them and what didn't because remember this started about eight years ago and it was very little research on smoking cessation via vaping or dual use or anything related to vaping at that time. So we gathered information by listening to actual vapors in our laboratory and then we incorporated this information into our self-help uh, intervention which is a series of booklets we send people over a course of 18 months. We call it extended self-help which is a distinction between normal self-help where you just give somebody a pamphlet um, you know, one time and that tends not to work too well. So we, we updated our booklets for this population. We call them If You Vape, you know, a guide to quitting smoking for uh, vapors. And this series of booklets and pamphlets gets mailed to participants every month for 18 months. So once we had the intervention, we recruited nearly 2,900 dual users uh, to a study to follow them for two years. And notably, these weren't people who were necessarily trying to quit smoking or seeking help. We just recruited as saying, we're doing a study to follow dual users and see how they progress over time. And that's how we recruited them. But once they contacted us, we said, you know, it's possible we may also send you some intervention material to help you quit smoking. And then we randomized them into three arms in the clinical trial. So one arm received no intervention. So they were just a surveillance arm control, uh, just as we recruited them for. 
and then another arm received our new if you vape intervention and then the third arm received our previous self-help which was also 18 months similar kind of intervention but not tailored at all toward vapors so just a regular smoking cessation intervention so those were the two you know control conditions a total control surveillance only and a regular smoking cessation self-help and then we just you know assessed them for their, both their smoking and their vaping for every three months uh, for the next two years fantastic and can i just ask in terms of that if you vape booklet and the feedback that you got from your focus groups, what do you have any examples of the kind of thing that went in that that was different from your traditional self-help manual? Yeah, so I mean, you know, we had all the regular smoking cessation material in there. We didn't really take any of that out, but we added new sections that yep. were specific to vapors. And then, and then the, the examples we used, the, the sort of testimonials that were part of our booklets and pamphlets were all based on the stories that vapors told us. So one example might be, and, and since then other research has found the same thing, one of the pieces of advice was of people who were successful was that they initially, um, when they were starting to switch, took up tobacco flavored um, e-cigarettes because that eased the transition from their combustible cigarettes to their e-cigarettes because it was similar fit flavor or menthol if they were menthol smokers. And then over time, yeah. they switched to a non-tobacco flavor, like a fruit flavor or dessert flavor, for example. And they did that in order to kind of burn the bridge behind them to make it uh, less easy to switch right back to smoking yeah. again and to distinguish it from smoking. And one of the things we learned that they didn't like to call them even e-cigarettes because that kind of implied it was still smoking. They preferred to call them, you know, vapes and call themselves vapors. Um, so that's just one of, of several examples. They also gave advice about how to ease off the nicotine content and um, actually a lot of interesting things. And this was one of the early qualitative studies, not the very first, but fairly early on. And since then, other research has found very similar advice from uh, vapors. That's so interesting. And I just really like that model of kind of getting that feedback from the community and putting that into the booklets. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, we... we we really had like three sources of the content for our booklets. One was just a regular smoking cessation material that had been empirically supported, and that's based on the cognitive behavioral model and relapse prevention model. Obscure science term definition. A cognitive behavioral model aims to help people identify and change automatic thought patterns that influence behaviors such as smoking and emotions. A relapse prevention model teaches people to identify high-risk situations that may lead them to return to smoking and provides them with strategies to cope with those situations. The second was the information we got from the vapors themselves I just described. And the third source was what we know about nicotine replacement therapies because we conceptualize this as perhaps a much more effective nicotine replacement therapy potentially because of its similarities with the act of smoking, you know, the, the sensory motor similarities. Obscure science term definition. In this context, sensory motor similarities refers to the fact that e-cigarettes mimic some of the sights, tastes and smells of smoking, as well as providing the familiar hand-to-mouth action of smoking. So we know that, for example, that one of the problems with nicotine replacement therapy is people often don't use enough of it. So you know, we encourage people to, you know, vape whenever they had cravings to smoke and, you know, emphasize that point is just one example of the translation between NRT and vaping. 
Fantastic. And were there any challenges in getting the study up and running? So getting funding, recruiting to it, or did it all go fairly smoothly? I know there's always some challenges. Um, yeah, I think the main challenge is associated with the divisive, you know, polarized opinions about vaping that are out there. I relate it to today's politics, but, you know, particularly in the United States, where people have taken such extreme positions in many cases. So to make it through the various re review processes from the original grant application to getting the main results published, you know, we really have to walk a fine line. You know, at one extreme are the uh, anti-tobacco advocates who don't distinguish between combustible and non-combustible nicotine products. So they don't like the idea that we're even considering possible public health benefits of vaping, like smoking cessation. But at the other extreme are the pro-vaping advocates who don't even believe that e-cigarettes should be treated as therapies and, that are tested by randomized controlled trials. They think they're consumer products, they, uh, RCTs don't adequately uh, capture their effectiveness. And they, you know, we actually suggest that at the very end of our intervention, we say, you know, if you've been able to quit smoking, maybe you want to consider quitting your vaping as well and becoming free of nicotine dependence. And we do this very gently but I've got blowback from the pro-vaping extremists that, you know, we shouldn't even be encouraging people to um, quit their vaping at any point. This is a completely benign uh, product and it's just fine if they vape. And it's certainly a lot safer than smoking as far as we know at this point, but I don't discount the effect of nicotine dependence and, you know, running smoking groups for 40 years, um, that's one of the main reasons people want to quit, to get free from that dependence and always having to worry about having their product with them and everything else. So. Uh, we give the people the option of, anyway, but we do it very gently. Yeah, it's uh, it is a particularly challenging area to work with in that regard. Is that um, it, one often finds they're pleasing no one if standing somewhere in the middle. Yeah, we get criticized from both directions. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> really interesting. And so, moving on, what did your study find? What what kind of were the main results, and was there anything that surprised you that came out of it? Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, um, kind of separate from our intervention itself that we found it was sort of surprising, especially um, given what we knew at the time we started this study, was we had pretty high rates of smoking cessation across all groups. Um, so I think even in the, um, the surveillance-only group, it didn't get any intervention. At two years, 40% of them had quit their smoking, uh, you know, of combustible cigarettes. So that's a pretty high rate by that's itself. Incredible. And I think other data has shown similar results. Uh, again, at the time we started this study, the fear was that dual users would be smoking and be stuck in dual use forever. Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's, that's really good news right there. Um, we found in terms of the uh, intervention itself, we found that our inter intervention, uh, the If You Vape booklets, uh, were beneficial over the course of the 18 months that people received the booklets. So it added another roughly 5 to 8% abstinence overall. And then the generic intervention that wasn't geared toward vapors specifically fell in between the two. So there was some benefit of any kind of help for smoking cessation, a somewhat added benefit if it was geared specifically to vapors. But one of the interesting things is that the largest effects of the intervention were among the most dependent smokers. So the least dependent smokers had pretty high rates of cessation. The more dependent they were, the lower their overall cessation rates were, but the bigger effect of the intervention itself. And that kind of makes sense. It's like nicotine replacement therapies work best with people who are dependent on cigarettes. If you're smoking just 
for social reasons and they're not physically dependent, you know, nicotine patches are going to make much difference. And it's probably the same thing with e-cigarettes and that extra help that we can give them for their e-cigarettes. So after 18 months, those differences narrowed uh, between arms. So that suggests to us that either we just sped up the cessation process or perhaps we have to extend it even longer um, to keep them engaged for, you know, 18 months may not be enough. And that's one of the nice things about having a low-cost intervention like this is that I imagine yep. the prospect of extending isn't quite as challenging as it might be if you were, let's say, delivering some sort of resource-intensive counseling or something. Yes, and we did a cost-effectiveness analysis, and it is pretty cost-effective compared to most interventions. I mean, it's just say, saying the booklets. We'd like to do a, um, like a mobile you know, mHealth yeah. version of this yeah. as well as in our, our upcoming plans. And that might be even more cost effective if it yeah, was. Yeah, that would be fantastic to see. So kind of going back to that point we were talking about earlier in terms of treading the fine line, I suppose it were when it comes to vaping. I noticed that in your study, the intervention didn't endorse starting to vape. And that, of course, makes sense because you're in dual users who are already vaping. But you also write that it really set out, I think you said, not to demonize or immediately discourage ongoing vaping. But then later, let's say once someone had quit smoking, to recommend stopping vaping. I was wondering kind of how you worded that because it feels such a nuanced and complex area and a place where sometimes I think we could do better in the way we word and communicate these messages. Yeah, so one of the lessons we learned from those early focus groups is that vapors were very sensitive to any suggestion they should give up their vaping. Um, If they were active vapors and they were feeling they were getting some benefits from it in terms of cutting down their smoking, They didn't want us to suggest that at all. And some of our other research, survey research suggests that as well. So we decided we're not even going to talk about quitting your vaping until near the end of the 18 months. I think around the 15 month point or so we brought up that suggestion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do mention that we, you know, there there are likely some negative health consequences of vaping. You know, it's still most likely far less than combustible smoking, but there probably still are some. But we, but we mostly emphasize the freedom from dependence aspect of it that I mentioned earlier, and that's kind of how we introduced that. Now, interestingly, we didn't find any significant differences across arms in terms of re- vaping reduction. So our gentle reminders really didn't have any uh, effect overall. But we did find, and other studies have found this too, that the more people vaped, or let me put it this way, people who were vaped were more likely to have quit smoking. People who were continuing to vape were more likely to have mm-hmm. quit smoking at every follow-up point. Really interesting. And I think that, along with the overall cessation effects that we found, provides additional evidence that's been accumulating on the efficacy of vaping for smoking cessation, or at least, at the very least, for switching. Yeah, and I think this this study is such a nice piece of the puzzle, as it were, when it comes to our Cochrane review, where all we have so far are mainly trials where people have been provided e-cigarettes, but it's really nice to kind of see them encouraged to use their e-cigarettes to help them quit. So kind of following along that note around perhaps ceasing vaping at some point, in your discussion, you note that interventions that facilitate vaping cessation without risking smoking relapse are needed. And, and I couldn't agree more. So I think That is probably another area of research that we're going to hopefully start seeing more of because I think it is just, again, a really risky topic because, of course, we don't think they're harm-free, but we think they're considerably less harmful than smoking, and so there's a real trade-off around these messages and how we do this. 
Do you have any sense of what these interventions might look like? Do you have kind of any ideas? That might be too tough of a question, but I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, it remains an open question. I think timing will prove to be important. Um, The longer that vapors are smoke-free, probably the easier it will be for them to quit vaping without returning to smoking. And that's the key again. Yeah. And that's sort of consistent with some of our findings as well. It might be especially the case if e-cigarettes differ from combustible cigarettes in as many ways as possible. Sort of as we were talking about earlier was flavoring. Yeah. There's a sensory motor characteristic. So e-cigarettes that don't look or feel quite as much like combustible cigarettes might be easier to um, give up without going back to smoking. Again, you're kind of burning those behavioral uh, conditioning bridges behind you. Obscure science term definition. Behavioural conditioning is where a behaviour such as smoking becomes more frequent or predictable in response to a particular environment or stimulus, such as the smell of tobacco smoke. Therefore, burning these bridges would mean that people unlearn the association between these triggers and the response behaviour. As you switch away from all the aspects of um, that are associated with smoking, that was one of the advice pieces of advice that we got from our focus groups as well. Is uh, you know try to. Um, not not expand your vaping repertoire beyond what your smoking was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one reason that, um, you know, I've not been in favor of legislation that uh, proposes to el- completely eliminate flavors. I think the flavors are important for switchers. We probably yeah. want to get rid of the flavors that are overly appealing to kids, you know, that you hear a lot about the dinosaur vomit and things like that. But... Um, having at least an option of uh, a set of flavors that are available for adults that want to kind of get away from the tobacco uh, flavor associated with smoking is important. Did you just say then dinosaur it, uh, vomit, just to check? I I think there is, yeah, some oh flavors goodness. like that. They're always brought up as examples. Um, I Like, we hear the examples of bubble gum and stuff. I had never heard yeah. dinosaur vomit before, and I'm intrigued. Yeah, as to I mean, I haven't seen like. these. I see, you know, the advocates talk about flavors like wow. that. Wow, okay. Um, Sorry, continue. Just checking that I heard that right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, perhaps it was unicorn vomit. I can't remember. It's something, <laughs> <laughs> some animal vomit. <laughs> um, but it also may make sense to gradually uh, fade off the nicotine content of your e-cigarettes. And I'm actually on the advisory board of a startup that's developing a therapeutic uh, e-cigarette that would automatically do that kind of fading. Uh, so, you know, that's a, a possibility yeah, as well. Okay. I know that in those conversations about nicotine content, there is the concern that's expressed that people would then essentially inhale more of the nasties uh, in the process of trying to get more nicotine. So I'll be curious to hear how things go with that. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a difference between a gradual fading approach versus just limiting the nicotine content yeah. of e-cigarettes yeah. from the start, where you're likely to um, be more likely to have that uh, compensatory yeah. vaping um, to get the higher nicotine. Whereas if you're gradually reducing it, um, you know, you're adjusting slowly to these levels and you're physiologically you're adjusting yeah, to these that's levels. That's really interesting. So that's it for me about your study specifically. If there's anything you want to add on it, please do. But also always like to hear from people kind of following on the research they've done so far. What research do you think should be done next in this area? If you know you had all the time and money in the world, what kind of study might you hope to see? Well, first of all, we just need more clinical trials of e-cigarettes 
testing your efficacy for smoking cessation. It really amazes me that there are so few trials of a product that is used so much and it could have so significant public health impact. But there have been many barriers to conducting such studies. And that's actually what I wanted to do initially eight years ago, but we could not do those studies in the U.S. Um, and that's got me thinking, okay, what can we do? Well, maybe we can work with people who've already started using e-cigarettes since we're not allowed to give them to people. But we need to, to do those studies. They should be naturalistic studies as well. You know, a variety of research to test them, not only under highly controlled settings, but also in more real-world settings. We also need to study how best to communicate the relative risks of different nicotine products. I mean, most people incorrectly believe that e-cigarettes are as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking, even when I speak to scientists, because that's yeah. what the, the press tends to play up. Um, and that's really a failure in public health messaging. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then I think we need implementation studies on how public health and medical institutions should integrate e-cigarettes into their policies and procedures, you know, depending, of course, on the findings that come from these additional clinical trials. Either way, if you're giving advice for or against, we need to learn how to do it. Um, and if e-cigarettes continue to be found to be beneficial for smoking cessation, you know, how do we communicate that message? How do we incorporate that into a treatment plan for individuals that we see? Absolutely. Well, that is wonderful. So interesting. And I just want to say thank you so much once again. Well, thank you for inviting me today. I really enjoyed it and I look forward to your next Cochrane review. Thank you. So what I found really interesting about that chat with Professor Brandon, Jamie, was what he was talking about, about potentially trying to reduce e-cigarette use to help people to come off of e-cigarettes when they've used them to quit smoking and that's particularly interesting to me because a lot of the research that I've done in the past has been looking at helping people to reduce their smoking so it will be interesting to potentially think about ways that we can use what we've learned about reducing smoking to maybe help people to reduce their e-cigarette use but also what he touched upon which I think is really important is that we don't want people to feel you know vilified for using e-cigarettes and that they have to get off them too soon because I found it was really useful what he found about people who continued to vape were more likely to be able to sustain cessation and what we really don't want to be doing is discouraging people from continuing to vape where that's stopping them from going back to smoking. Exactly it's just that point I think about it being a spectrum of risk and so you want people off a higher risk product first and foremost um, onto a medium risk product and then off of that medium risk product if they can just be off all products generally. But we don't want to be taking people off of vaping, let's say, and then have them go back to smoking. That wouldn't be a success at all. So it's an area that I think we're starting to see more on around vaping cessation but it's just I think extremely important that it be communicated and the research be conducted in a nuanced way and I think it was nice to see that Professor Brandon and colleagues have put a lot of work in this trial around really nailing that messaging. Talking about talking to people about what what they think is the best thing to do I think a really great thing about this study was how they um, had those focus groups with people who vaped and asked them about their experiences and then went on to incorporate that into the design of the study and that's just a brilliant use of what we call patient and public engagement and yeah I thought that was really impressive and something that would be great if 
we could use more in research in all kinds of research in the future not necessarily just with electronic cigarettes yeah absolutely that was one of the things i really enjoyed hearing about as well and and just generally and i think we've touched on it before one of the reasons why this is such a fascinating field to work in and that a lot of the research and a lot of the science is really coming from the people who are using e-cigarettes to help them quit smoking and so so they have a really important role to play and to continue keep playing as this evidence evolves. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Great. Well, unless you have anything else to add, Nicola, I think that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening and to Professor Brandon for speaking with us. Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and stay tuned for our next episode. But remember to mention the findings we have Can't tell us what'll happen long term Even though we know vaping is safer than smoking We may still find cause for concern If you're thinking of switching to vaping That's what the experts agree Smoking's so bad for you, they all concur The vaping beats burning, there's much to learn Of effects on time yet to be Thank you to Jonathan Livingston Banks for running searches, to Elsa Butler for producing this podcast, and to all of you for tuning in. Music is written with Johnny Berliner and I, and performed by Johnny. Our Living Systematic Review is supported by funding from Cancer Research UK. The Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group also receives core infrastructure funding from the National Institutes for Health Research. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Nicola and I, and do not represent those of the funders.